Father in heaven, um, each of us has come into the sanctuary today, uh, or perhaps watching online, in a different place in our lives. Some of us, Lord, have had great news and an excellent week. Others of us have come into service today heavy of heart, uh, perhaps grieving, perhaps feeling anxious or despairing, uh, perhaps being convicted of sin. Uh, Father, we come in a variety of different situations this morning. And my prayer is that as we open this section of your word, that your spirit would be pleased to grant us fresh vision of your glory and your greatness, and that we would be uh, healed, Lord, by um, spending time in your word, healed by your Holy Spirit, working with your word, and that we would leave this service later, Lord, rejoicing and glad and full of joy because of who you are and what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, and may you be glorified now. Amen. Friends, we are living in what can be described as an anti-historical moment. We're living in a time in the Western world when history itself is being called into serious question. This is a time when traditional historical narratives are being dethroned and being dismantled. Due to the ongoing influence of 19th century philosophers like Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche, many in our day are viewing history as nothing more than a history of power grabs, a history of oppression. And so many people would prefer to overthrow history, to overcome history, to abandon whatever traditions have arisen from history, to focus only on the present moment and the thought that we as human beings must create our own identities in the now, without the bother and without the problem of history. As Carl Truman has noted, in our day it is, quote, psychological well-being that is deemed to be the purpose of life and happiness in the present moment is the overwhelming priority. Happiness in the present moment is the overwhelming priority, close quote. So there is a disregard and a, I would say a distaste for past history, for the traditions that have come out of history the idea is that we create our selves in the now. Well, as Christian believers in the family of God, we are not on board with that idea of erasing history and being self-creators in the now. And we're not on board with it because of what we find in God's Word. 
God, in His Word, is very interested, very interested in bringing us with some frequency to rehearsals of the past. Have you noticed that? That the Bible devotes a great deal of space to rehearsing the past, rehearsing, recounting the history of our ancestors in the faith telling the story of our spiritual family tree and doing it all for great theological and great spiritual purposes. History is very important to God. So we think of all the genealogies that are spread throughout the Bible as an example. The genealogies naming and recounting the many ancestors of the faith. Or we think of Psalm 78, and Psalm 105, and Psalm 106, and Psalm 135, and Psalm 136, where in each of those cases, the history of God's people is recounted, rehearsed. We think also of the long prayer, the long prayer of the Levites in Nehemiah chapter 9, which is a leisurely recounting of the sacred history. We think also of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen engages in another lengthy retelling of the history of Israel, the history of God's people. And there are many other places in Scripture that we might mention where the history of God's people is told, is retold, with all its highs, with all its lows, with all its blessings, with all its curses, with all its successes, and with all its failures. Clearly, God's desire is that we know where we came from and we know who we are as his children, and that we heed the lessons that the sacred history teaches us so that we will not commit the same sins and errors that our spiritual ancestors committed. Well, this morning, friends, we are flying in our spiritual airplane (laughs) from Acts chapter 2, where we have been over the past weeks, now over to Acts chapter 13, to begin looking at another apostolic sermon, this time from the lips of the Spirit-filled Apostle Paul. And guess what? The vast bulk of Paul's sermon in Acts 13 is in the past tense. It is yet another one of those rehearsals of the history of God's people, the history of God at work with his people. Now this sermon in Acts 13 was preached on Paul's first missionary journey. The setting of the sermon is the Jewish synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. And Pisidian Antioch was a city within the Roman province of Galatia. When Paul would later write his letter to the Galatians, most likely some of the recipients who first read that letter had been converted during this time that Paul spent at Pisidian Antioch in the province of Galatia. Acts 13.15 takes us into the synagogue So we're in the Jewish synagogue now where Paul will preach this sermon. 
The parashah and the haftarah have just been read. In other words, in the synagogue service, the people have just listened to the customary readings from both the law of God and from the prophets. And now, following custom, a distinguished guest is asked to give the midrash or to come up and preach on the passages that have just been read. And Paul and Barnabas are the distinguished guests. Now, either Paul and Barnabas were already known to the Jewish community in this city, or they were marked out as potential preachers because of where they were sitting in the synagogue service, or both were the case. But in any, in any case, Paul and Barnabas are invited to give the midrash to preach. The, the invitation is given there in verse 15. So after the readings have finished, the rulers of the synagogue say to Paul and Barnabas, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, or we could also translate that as word of exhortation for the people, say it. So there's the open door. There is the invitation. And then verse 16, so... Paul's sitting down. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, gesturing, gesturing with his hand to gain the attention of his audience, Paul says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So notice there that Paul addresses two different groups. There are the men of Israel, that is, there are the Jews who are present, and there are those who fear God. The God-fearers who Paul addresses here are Gentiles who were in attendance at this synagogue service. These were people who were attracted to Israel's God, attracted to the teachings of Judaism, these were people who held a reverence for the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, but they were not full-fledged Jews. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then Paul will launch into a historical recounting, a rehearsal of Israel's history. And friends, this is a very interesting thing for us to consider. The apostles, as they preached, recounted the story. Their focus was not on seven nuggets of truth for today or three ways to have a better marriage or any of those sorts of concerns, however legitimate, and those are legitimate concerns, but the apostles preached the story of God. They recounted the history of Israel. And I really think that especially, especially in 2021, in the Western world, the church needs to take cues from the apostles in terms of preaching content, in terms of sharing the faith, People in the West today are living and breathing and walking around disoriented in this anti-historical moment. So many people today living only for the now 
are simply unaware that they connect to a story, no matter who they are, they connect to a story that God has been unfolding and that God is unfolding in his world. We, the church, have a responsibility to preach a gospel that is not merely focused on the now, but a gospel that also rehearses God's mighty acts in past history and a gospel that shows the things that God has promised for the future. Our gospel, my friends, has to do with past, present, and future, not just present. Amen? And so Paul takes us back in history as his sermon begins. Verse 17, Paul says, and the glory begins. <laughs> he says, God, the God of this people, Israel, chose, past tense, our fathers. So Paul is already here recounting the past history of Israel as the sermon kicks off. And notice there that the first verb in the body of Paul's sermon is a verb that describes an action of who? Of God. God had chosen the fathers of Israel all by himself. God had chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was God's work. God chose our fathers. And, says Paul, God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now note that a second verb in Paul's sermon is attached to who? To God. It was God who chose the fathers of Israel, and now it's God who had made the people great when they were in Egypt. Yes, indeed, Paul here is referring back to that initial chapter of Exodus, I think it's verse 7 in Exodus chapter 1, where a gigantic boom in the population of the Hebrew people is reported there. God had done this. God had increased and had multiplied Abraham's descendants, because Abraham is a new Adam. Adam was supposed to increase and multiply God is now increasing and multiplying the population of the Hebrew people. God had done this in keeping, we need to notice, in keeping with his covenantal promises. The promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God was keeping his promises, growing the Hebrew people even as they languished enslaved to Egypt. Still in verse 17, Paul says that with uplifted arm, God led them out of it. Led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. Another verb is attached to God in Paul's sermon. He led them out. Have you noticed, friends, how much God does for his people? Have you noticed that in your own life? how much God does for his people. Can you see how many of God's actions already are packed into just a single verse in the sermon? God chose our ancestral fathers in the faith. He multiplied his people while they were languishing in Egypt. And now Paul recounts yet another mighty action 
of our God, God led his people out of Egypt with a mighty, uplifted arm when they were helpless to help themselves. God has done great things for his people. Are you with me this morning? He has done great things for his people. In Exodus 6, verse 6, God had promised his enslaved, helpless people that he would redeem them with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and that is precisely what he did. Doesn't matter what your situation is right now, never doubt the power and the ability of your God. With God, how many things are possible? All things are possible. Let's go to verse 18. Paul continues in his historical rehearsal. And for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. So now, what's Paul doing? He's moving in his sermon, in his historical recounting, he's moving to the wilderness years, right? that are recorded in the middle of the book of Exodus. And Paul applies yet another action word to God here. God put up with, or God bore with, his murmuring, doubting, complaining people as they trekked around for all those decades in the wilderness. Now, what sort of putting up with or what sort of bearing with are we talking about here? Well, we get great clues as to the nature of this putting up with, this forbearance, in several places of Scripture. So in Deuteronomy 1.31, Moses describes God there as, listen to this, as having carried complaining Israel through the wilderness as one carries a child. So the carrying, the putting up with Israel had a tender edge about it. And despite all that complaining and murmuring that his people were doing in the wilderness years, and yes, they sure were, God still provided them in the wilderness with manna. He still gave them water from the rock. And God also made sure that his complaining people had clothes that did not wear out and feet that did not swell. According to Deuteronomy 8.4 and Deuteronomy 29.5. You know, friends, sometimes in our own lives, we come to a certain place in our life and we, we, we can look back at an earlier season and reflect and we think to ourselves, wow, I sure must have tested God's patience during that season of my life. And yet we can look back on that same period and see that just as God had been so patient and so caring with complaining Israel in the wilderness, providing them manna, making sure their clothes didn't wear out, carrying them as a child. Just as God did that, so he did with us during our period of being difficult. And why? 
Because God is slow to anger (laughs) and patient and merciful and forbearing even when we don't deserve it. 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are, this is one of my favorite verses, even if we are faithless, oh yes, Brent has been faithless more times than I can count. Even when we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. And we know that truth, and what does it do to us? It motivates us to get on our knees in thanksgiving and then to get up from our knees in obedience. Well, Paul continues to recount Israel's past history now in verse 19. He goes forward in the history. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Notice, won't you, (laughs) that still another two verbs are applied to God here in Paul's sermon as he recounts the time now of the conquest under Joshua. God destroyed seven nations and God gave his people their land as an inheritance. And we pause again to say, just to point this out, that this rehearsal of Israel's history, the the history of the people of God that Paul gives here in the sermon, this is a God-saturated history that highlights over and over and over again the power and the faithfulness and the mercy of our God. When God acts for his people, there is blessing attached. Amen? Now, in this verse, Paul probably is alluding to Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, which tells of God clearing away seven nations that were mightier and more numerous than Israel was. Do you remember the seven nations? The Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. There's your mouthful for the morning. God cleared away those nations so that Israel could do what? So that Israel could take the land that God had promised when he had made covenant with Abraham uh, back in Genesis chapter 15. Again, God, in the history of his people, was being faithful to his covenant. Verse 20, Paul says, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he did what? He gave, again, because God is a giving God, God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now notice again, another verb attached to God. God gave the judges to Israel in those initial years of their life in the promised land. So again, we look at this sermon, we say, wow, all these verbs attached to God. In fact, let's do a quick review of the verbs from verse 17 down to verse 20, because we need to see this, we need to carry this with us into our day, uh, the action of God on behalf of his people. So God chose, God made the people great, God led them out, God put up with, God destroyed, God gave the land, and God gave them judges. You get the feeling, do you not, that the whole history of God's people is a history of divine action. 
from causing the people of God to exist in the first place to growing his people, to leading them, to sustaining them, to fighting for them, giving to them. It's all God. Paul's sermon so far is a God-centered, God-exalting sermon, just the kind we always need. (laughs) Amen? He says here that God gave his people judges until Samuel the prophet. The period of, of the judges was a very dark time in the history of God's people. The book of Judges tells us that that during that period, the people did what was right in their own eyes. People did what was right in their own eyes. Never a very wise plan. There was plenty of horrific violence during the time of the Judges, and Samuel, who's mentioned here, At the end of verse 20, Samuel was a sort of transitional figure. Samuel bridged from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy, to the time of the kings in Israel. He's a transitional figure. Now when we get to verse 21, notice something very interesting happens now. So suddenly, after that plethora of verbs, action words that are attached to God throughout verses 17 through through 20, now we get an action that is attached to people, to human beings. Then they asked, there's the verb, the people asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, (laughs) the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 difficult years. So coming out of the time of the judges, the people of Israel asked that a king be installed in Israel, and and that moment of their history turned out, friends, to be a great disaster. It was a great disaster because the people had asked for a king with the wrong motive. According to 1 Samuel 8, 5 and 8, 19, the people of Israel asked to have a king set over them because they desired to be like other nations that lived around them. They wanted to be like the other nations, all of which had kings. That was the wrong motive. To be like other nations, to have the same sort of national security, the same sort of national strength as the other pagan nations that lived around them, this was a very different motive than continuing to strive for covenant fidelity with God. It's a very different motive. And even though God had promised, we need to note, God had promised that his people would indeed have kings set over them. He he promised that way back in Genesis and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. Even though that's the case, the appointment of Saul as the first king in Israel was an ill-founded appointment. 
So notice this in Paul's sermon. He's gone from all those verbs that were attached to God, all those verbs that included so much blessing, now to this single verb that is attached to people. This asking for a king, which turned out to be a disastrous action. It would seem that part of Paul's point so far, listen, is that when God acts for his people, there is tremendous blessing. But when people act according to their own desires, there is disaster. History teaches us a lot. Let's go to verse 22. And when he, God, had done what? Removed him. Removed who? Saul. He did what? He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now notice again, won't you, all the verbs that are, again, attached to God now, after that one that's attached to people that's disaster. God removed Saul from the throne, blessed thing. God raised up David, blessed thing for Israel in that moment. Testified concerning David. God found David to be the right person for the role of kingship. Friends, our history as God's people is a history of God's mighty actions. May God be praised in this place. Let's again rehearse this sacred history with Paul. Let's do it again. God had been wise in choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had been mighty, growing Israel while they were still enslaved in Egypt. God had been merciful, leading them out of Egypt by a mighty hand. God had been merciful, putting up with his complaining people in the wilderness all those 40 years, sustaining them with provision. God had been mighty, destroying seven nations stronger than them in the land of Canaan before giving them the land. God had preserved his people through that very dark time in the, of the judges. And God had been merciful and mighty and wise again for his people when he removed Saul and brought David, raised David up upon the scene. With David as their king, great blessing fell upon Israel. The sacred history shows, does it not, that when God, listen, when God makes choices on behalf of his people, help and blessing comes. And notice here in our verse that not only did God choose to raise up David in place of Saul, in place of Saul God also evaluated David. God testified concerning David, saying, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. And if we're, we're wondering, what does it mean to be after God's heart? Paul then helps us by describing what it means. He says of David that David would do all the will of God. So for David to be after God's heart, it meant that David did all God's will. David was a doer of God's word, not just a hearer. But, we don't want to shine David up too much, do we? David 
was very far from perfect in this department, right? For all the blessing on Israel that came about because of David, and it did, for all the devotion to God that is clearly reflected in David's Psalms, David turned out to be a limited, frail, sinful human being like we are. David abused his power. David lusted. David exploited. David murdered. David neglected his duties terribly as a father. Have you been taking stock of what Paul has been doing in this sermon? Paul has been walking his audience, he's been walking us through our history. And the history of God's people is a history of divine action. A river of God's actions on behalf of his people with a current of human helplessness and weakness and disobedience that runs underneath. God chose Israel's fathers. God grew his helpless people into a great nation during their time of slavery. God redeemed them out of that slavery. Then God put up with his obstinate people for 40 years in the wilderness while he mercifully provided for them. Then God mightily made good on his promise of the land by clearing away seven nations stronger than Israel. Then God set up temporary leadership in the judges, these warlords, before giving a disobedient and tone-deaf Israel what they wanted, which was King Saul. Then God mercifully removed Saul and raised up David and the blessing and the prosperity in Israel at that point went off the charts. But even David turned out to be a mere sinful shadow of what was to come. Well, after this rehearsal of God at work in the history of his people, Paul then, notice in the text, he leaps forward (laughs) many centuries. He goes from David, now to the one who we are here to worship today. He is the reason you came through rain today to be with us in this sanctuary. He is the reason, friends at home, that you fired up your computer to be with us in worship today. Verse 23, notice what Paul says here. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman goes through Abraham, goes through David, goes to Jesus. Of this man's seed, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a what? A Savior. Are you happy today? 
Jesus as he promised. Now, I want to ask you a question. When Paul had mentioned the fathers of Israel in this sermon, the great Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did he call any of them saviors? No. Or, or when he mentioned Samuel, the great prophet, in verse 20, was Samuel called a savior? No. Or were either Saul or David called a savior? No, there's only, friends, one Savior. Amen? There's only one who is capable enough, mighty enough, wise enough, marvelous enough to fulfill the promise that God had made to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, where there would be someone on David's throne who would have an eternal kingdom. There's only one who can fulfill that, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who sits on the eternal throne of David. Amen? The culmination of the history of God's people, listen, the culmination of the history of God's people is Jesus. The fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham and the fulfillment of God's covenant with David is Jesus. The bringer of the new covenant, as promised in Jeremiah 31 and other places, the bringer of the new covenant in which we stand is Jesus. Our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who is greater than David, who overcame the Goliaths that you and I face. We were like Saul, shaking in our boots, unwilling and helpless before these Goliaths of sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus, our warrior king, has defeated them on behalf of his people. He has redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Amen? Paul, in that Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, has rehearsed the history of Israel for the purpose of culminating all of it in Jesus Christ, bringing it all to a climax in Jesus here. And he's going to keep going. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back at it next week. But so far, he's culminated everything in Jesus, showing the people how Jesus is, in fact, the arrival point of their entire history. He's showing us here how all these divine verbs that we've seen all those verbs of action that are attached to God in the ancient history of Israel, every one of those actions that God performed were in the path toward the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, our Savior and our Lord. Now, the sheer magnitude of Jesus, and I hope that we, the Spirit is pleased to give us a vision of the sheer magnitude of Jesus. It will really help us this week. The sheer magnitude of Jesus Christ, the lofty, magnificent, fearful, wonderful greatness of our King is then brought into sharp relief in the next two verses, our final two verses today, verses 24 and 25. So Paul continues preaching here, and notice what he says. He says, before his coming, that is, before the coming into the world of Jesus Christ, and then notice who he mentions here. John 
had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Yes, John the baptizer had come in his bizarre dress, eating locusts and honey, and John had preached urgently to the people, repent, turn around, turn to your God. Now friends, don't miss the fact that John himself, John himself was so impressive and so awe-inspiring that at least some of the people thought that he might be the Messiah. John 3.15 tells us that some were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Christ. So clearly there was something very remarkable and very profound about John, his presence, his ministry. They thought, could he be the Christ? But for his part, John (laughs) was quick to correct that hypothesis that he might be the Christ. John would make it very clear, very clear, that in fact he was not the Messiah. So John's role in, the, in, the, in fulfillment of parts of Isaiah, his role was to be the road clearer. The one who was sent to prepare the way for the imminent appearance of the Messiah. John was the very last of the prophets to prophesy the Messiah. John was sent to say this, the time of fulfillment has now come, repent Turn to God, he's here. In verse 25, Paul's sermon, our final verse today, Paul reports what John had said. Paul says, and as John was finishing his course, finishing up his ministry, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, This is the great, impressive, profound John speaking. One is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The great and impressive John had said that he wasn't even worthy to act as the lowliest servant untying the sandals. And somebody comes into your house in the ancient areas, you as a lowly servant, you go and you take their sandals off and prepare them for washing, the feet for washing. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals as the lowliest of servant. So as great and as impressive as John may have been, he paled in comparison, and I hope we see it today, he paled in comparison to the greatness and the glory of our King Jesus Christ. What has Paul done in his sermon so far? He's already set up a question. Just as this morning at Snowden Baptist Church, God through his word has set up a question. The question for the Jewish synagogue audience went something like this. What will you do now with the Savior Jesus? What will you do with this one whose coming God has worked toward 
throughout the entire history of Israel. What, you, what will you do now that Jesus has come? Will you do as those in your family tree did in times past when in the time of the judges they simply did what was right in their own eyes and ignored God? Will you do that? Will you dishonor God in that way and bring trouble upon yourselves? Or will you do as your people did in the time of Samuel the prophet and go ahead out of step with God, desiring the wrong sort of king to rule over you? Are you going to do that? Or will you bow your life to Jesus Christ the King and receive this one? whom God has sent, the Savior, the Messiah, the greater than David, the greater than Abraham, the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. And friends, the question really is the same for us today. What will we do with Jesus now that he has come? What will we do tomorrow with Jesus now that he has come? Knowing that he has come into this world and that he is coming again, Will we repent and turn to God and be baptized? For any listening today who are not in a vital relationship with the risen King Jesus, have you seen in his word today the mercy and the patience and the grace and the love of God throughout the history of God's people? A mercy, a patience and grace and love that brought into the world the only one who can save you from your sin and its dire consequences. Have you seen Jesus? And do you see your, your desperate need for the help and the forgiveness that God has provided to you in the cross of his son? Much later in the book of Acts, Paul describes his ministry as a ministry to the Gentiles, to people like us, who in Paul's language must, he says, repent and turn to God, all you Gentiles, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And I stand on the shoulders of Paul as a sinner forgiven by the grace of God in Christ, and I exhort you today that since Christ has come and will come again, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with your repentance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are countless ways in which each of us rub against the grain of your universe. Lord, we go in directions and we go to places. We go in self-will, Lord, turning away from you. And Lord, we're bound to get slivers when we go against the grain of your universe. I pray for anyone listening today, Lord, who, whose heart has been hard and stubborn that by your word today, Lord, you would pierce through. Lord, your word, your word can do that. Pierce to the marrow 
Soften hearts, Lord. Bring someone to faith in you, is my prayer. Help them to surrender and to turn to you and to repent and to walk in abundance of life with you. This is my prayer, our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen.